Hi, I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. We both love and are fascinated by stories. Stories about people. Stories about places. And stories about events. Our stories give shape and form to life. They give texture, color, and rhythm to the blank canvas that every new day presents to us. And they do that by informing us of our past as a directional marker for our future. Okay, Will, it's narrative time. Tell me a story. Welcome to Narratives. This is Will's dad. And I've shanghaied Will this weekend and brought him to the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina on a beautiful late summer day. And we're going to bring you a little bit about um, a place that he's been before, China. So um, first we're going to talk a little about the Shanghai reference. And it turns out that in the 19th century, and I always have to be careful when I think about these 19th, 18th century designations, because it really refers to the century between 1800 and 1900. But since the century started essentially zero, that's right. Uh, it throws everything off. So you sort of have to, you know, account for that. So that we're going to talk about 19th century, the Opium Wars, and Shanghai. And Shanghai is a port city in China. And um, the Opium Wars, the first Opium War was between 1839 and 1842 between Great Britain and China. And it was over opium. And um, so after that concluded, there was a second Opium War between 1856 and 1860. And let, let me interrupt there. So yeah. what is opium? Some of our readers are. It's heroin. It's heroin. Yeah. Right. And that's what the wars were about, apparently, is China shipping opium to the United Kingdom, Great Britain, right? Trade. But trade. Yeah. Mercant mercantilism at its finest. Yes. And so uh, uh, when, those, when the Second Opium War concluded um, in the Treaty of Peking or Peking, Will, Peking? Peking is what I would Don't say. Don't call me on that. <laughs> um, uh, China ceded uh, control of the Kowloon Peninsula, uh, part of it, which turned out to be Hong Kong, to um, uh, Great Britain for 100 years, rented it to them for 100 years, leased it to them for 100 years, and also uh, uh, designated Shanghai and Canton is trade ports and so that's sort of the uh origination of where shanghai becomes popularly known because uh, people were often um kidnapped and put on naval vessels and taken uh forced to go to shanghai as um, forced labor so you could get shanghai kidnapped and that's what it is or commonly today is to be shanghai right. so was that was that uh Kind of like British naval impressment before the um, I, th I had War of the, 1812. You know, um, who who was getting captured? I guess. Who who was doing it? I had the impression this was privateers, gotcha. and um, I'm, it, in fact, it says um, American naval vessels, uh, American merchant ships. Uh, that wouldn't be the naval vessels. That would be privateers. Is that right? That's right. So. Um, so apparently the Americans were doing that. That was us. Oh, boy. And that's where the term Shanghai comes from. So uh, that uh, bringing Shanghai and Will to a 
Blue Ridge Mountains uh, of North Carolina this weekend that will lead us into uh, our discussion about Shanghai. That's right. And uh, so I was going to ask you this question. Can you tell us about a trip to Shanghai? I sure can. So last time I was in China, the only time I was in China, was in 2015. So I went to Shanghai. I lived in Shanghai for about two or three months. I can't remember the exact time time frame. Um, but I, I worked at a startup there for a while, in the pharmaceutical space, helped with kind of an angel raise there, some product market fit strategy stuff. Um, it was super interesting working in China. Um, it just Shanghai itself is, is quite a cosmopolitan city. Um, it's, it, it's very much like New York, feels like New York. Um, most people speak English. It's quite globalized as opposed to Beijing. feels a little bit different. Um, it's interesting. Mo, a, a, the vast, but if, if you had to take part out cities in China, I think uh, the Shanghai metropolitan area would make up something like 30 or 40% of the GDP of the whole country. It's kind of the crown jewels in terms of finance. It's located on a big river. Which I cannot currently pronounce. I can't remember. It's been a while since I've been over there. Um, but it's it's kind of the financial hub, crown jewel of China in that sense. Um, very much like New York or London, one of these big you know trading center financial hubs, um, which makes it quite valuable. And it's been you know it always changes hands whenever the um, current regime comes to power, which is very interesting. You know, China, there's a great book by um, Peter Zeehan. Um, Peter Zeehan is kind of a geopolitical strategist. I, I think he's a little too obsessed with geography. In, in other words, geography is destiny to Peter Zeehan. So he thinks China is, the China threat is non-existent because um, they're kind of cursed by poor geography. You know, their calories per person um, ratio, how much they can produce is pretty small. It's import a lot of food. Um, you know, the Great Wall of China exists because you needed to keep invaders out. They don't have natural land barriers. Um, and they aren't very friendly with any of their neighbors, really. You know, who's their ally? Uh, Dad, could you name an ally of China that sits directly beside it? Like a true ally? No. Maybe North Korea? Well. Keep them at arm's length, right? Like yeah, in right. North Korea? That's right. It's not the Vietnamese. Vietnamese. Uh, it's definitely not Japan for reasons. Taiwan, nope. You know, go down the list. Um, and it's interesting now we even see that um, even despite the Vietnam War, Vietnam has become a closer ally to the U.S. because of Chinese kind of imperial ambitions in the South China Sea and, and elsewhere. Um, so, so China's got, you know, some geographic problems um, as a country. Challenges, I would say. They have challenges. They do have challenges. Um, but geography isn't everything, Peter Zeehan. That's something I'd like to remind him. Uh, but it is important. It absolutely is important. Um, and Sh Shanghai is important because it's on a navigable waterway. Um, and uh, it's, you know, a port city. You bring in a lot of goods and trade. So it's fairly wealthy. Um, it's also interesting, you know, they, there's quite a bit of colonial architecture. There's a French Quarter, things of that nature, kind of like New Orleans in that sense. Um, and... Uh, Anyway, so is it getting back to Shanghai? So I spent um, a good amount of time there in 2015. I experienced, you know, business culture, 
you know, I work with a lot of expats as well. There's a kind of a, there's a very weird expat culture in Shanghai. And there's people that never get out of, you know, hanging out with other Westerners in Shanghai. And that's kind of a weird thing. You know, one of my favorite things to do was to go out and just walk the city all the time. So I just go walk. I'd, I'd walk all over the place, take the subway places, just go all over the place and just see everything. Um, which was really, I really uh, kind of a fun thing to do. What, one of the one of the interesting things about um, Shanghai, and one of my favorite parts about it, was um, walkability and safety. Um, it truly felt like pretty much anyone could walk around the city at any time, and not be w- worried about getting, you know, mugged or anything like that. You know, I I, don't, I wouldn't do the same in New York. Um, but Shanghai felt quite safe in that sense. Was it, were there great, were there a lot of crowds, a lot of people, or is it, would that be like just a rush hour, lunchtime during the business week where it would be real crowded? What, what was that like? Um, it, it was quite crowded. So on the commute. So my favorite thing is, you know, I, I was staying in a college dorm and, um, I, I would walk out. And it would be, it's like North Carolina weather except hotter. So it would actually be, it would be 103 degrees and as humid as North Carolina because it's, it's, it's marshland, it's kind of a swamp, it's right on a river, river, kind of tropical. And you would walk outside and you would immediately start sweating like crazy. Immediately start sweating like crazy. So I would walk over to the um, kind of the school cafeteria. It was very, uh, it's very interesting because, you know, the school cafeteria is very cheap, but it really did feel like, what one would imagine kind of a canteen and in the uh post-cultural revolution area just just how it's kind of built you know universities are in in china are not quite uh america is singular in that our universities have huge endowments there are essentially no schools with endowment like so if you took the top 50 endowments in the u.s uh in the world universities um you know there would be two or three schools that are in the u.s on the top 50 so uh you know schools are not alumni giving is is really an american thing maybe it has to do with sports it's unclear maybe it's something about status and you know making your institution higher status and by if transient property gives you status but not sure about that but so the the buildings are definitely older which is interesting and uh the facilities aren't as nice although the students are quite wealthy um this probably has to do with corruption, things like that. But, you know, there'd be kids that would drive Ferraris and Lamborghinis and things like that. And it was very, very interesting to see, right? So, you know. But it was largely unair conditioned. No, it was air conditioned. Oh, it was air conditioned. Oh, yeah. They, they would run the air conditioned all the time. Um, they had the doors open, run the air conditioning. It was running the air conditioning. Um, so all of the, yeah, that's another interesting thing. Um, at least at the time, now this was five years ago, um, there was uh, a, a big emphasis on keeping power to, you know, inner Shanghai. So there would be brownouts outside the city, but you would never, you know, if you're in the center part of the city, more general inner Shanghai, there's always power and there's a lot of, and so, you know, all the luxury stores keep their doors open, AC blowing out to kind of invite you in, uh, which is very interesting, but commuting, um, my friend Eliza and I, uh, we both worked at this this startup, and you know we commuted sometimes together. I think the first time we realized we weren't Kansas anymore, we we got on the train um, to get to commute to work, and uh, 
there was this just mob of people getting on the train and it's it, one difference culturally is uh lines are not really a thing in china there's more just everyone just masses up and tries to get in so you know it, it's very interesting like checkout lines are uh part of civilization i really do value now um so instead so they would they would essentially have um attendants that would push everyone on the train and if you've ever been pushed by a crowd where you can't move you know i'm a fairly large person you know i'm like 230 pounds like six one pretty big dude and you're just swept away by the crowd and onto the train and just jammed together you understand how some of these like uh big crush events that kill a lot of people like you know in soccer stadiums and hodge and becca like how that happens you understand how that can happen because it is it's a little little horrifying so it's that's sounds very different from the subway system in new york city or london yes now it is much cleaner much cleaner much nicer um i would ride the subway in shanghai any day over new york definitely so uh so in new york we'll use new york and london as two places that people will be familiar with and may have ridden on public transportation yes people have some kind of personal space even if you're kind of right it's close but it sounds like that that you're like a uh like a sardine you are you, uh, during rush hour you're definitely on sardine so we don't after that i always stayed off rush hour um i think it's a it's a fact that it's just not there wasn't enough capacity for the required um for the number of people trying to get places my two cents was the subway uh air conditioned as well or was yes that, air it was yeah very okay. nice very nice subway so public transportation what were there buses that ran through the city as well or there there were buses as well i didn't take buses i just took the took the train because i knew the train lines you know you learn the train once you learn the train lines it's it's a lot easier okay talk a little bit about the food because one thing you've mentioned to me is that the entire time you were in Shanghai, you never ate anything that was green. I really, so that was just, yeah, I don't know if that's just like Western or superstition, but, you know, uh, you know, uh, produce can, can have problems sometimes, so you just kind of avoid it. Now, I did eat uh, fruit smoothies a lot. Fruit smoothies are like really cheap, you know, mangoes, things like that. Um, so I would, I would drink those regularly. I ate a lot of street food, actually. Uh, street food is awesome. Those so did you parts. see vegetables like? broccoli lettuce did you see it there or was that fairly I, uncommon I, I did see it the well the problem is, is it's just like here right so uh we just had this onion outbreak with uh salmonella excuse me salmonella outbreak with onions um and uh it's the same kind of thing like produce can carry pathogens and it's more difficult to determine you know if it's fresh and you haven't cooked it it's just kind of a problem so i would eat cooked vegetables and things but i would avoid straight up i wouldn't eat a salad so they were available. It's just that you elected not to eat them because of That's sanitation. Correct. That's essential. Yeah. Okay. Uh, tell me about. There was a story about the stock market. Ah, yes. So uh, if you guys remember, this was not as big of a news in the uh, United States, but. Uh, Peter Zihan actually talks about this. You know, China has relied on um, a lot of fina financialization to fuel growth, um, a lot of leverage, a lot of leverage. I mean, we use a lot of leverage here too, right? But it's another story. Uh, 
there's a huge building boom and there's stories about you know entire cities sitting empty with you know high skyscrapers that you know no one to fill them um so there's a lot of state-owned corporations there's a lot of weird things that can happen because they're state-owned corporations they don't necessarily have to be tied to reality like a for-profit enterprise would um long story short there was a huge stock market crash and people leading up to the stock market crash were um you know buying stocks on credit cards and taking out loans on their houses to buy stocks Uh, things had gotten quite frothy um and actually the worst thing was uh we kind of it, it, it it struck home that the stock market crash was a problem because we uh i remember going to a mall with a friend and the malls are amazing huge uh you know they're like they could be seven ten stories uh, and you can actually look down to the bottom from the top floor and you know there's not there's not a very high railing um and we go in one day and someone had jumped from the roof not the roof but from the top floor um and that started happening a lot and come to find out the reason was people were taking out leverage um to buy stocks got wiped out and they have to they owe the money back right and they can't pay it and people were committing suicide. Um, and it, it, was, it was pretty sad. Very interesting, though, because uh, you didn't read a lot about it in the news. And I, I think there's this misperception about the Great Fire Firewall in China. Do you know what the Great Firewall is? No. So the, um, And we'll talk a little bit more about this in more detail around some recent happenings a little bit later in the show. But the Great Firewall, um, the Chinese Communist Party, dictates what websites are available. So it's harder to get to Western news. So this is really hard if you're working on pro- – so startup we were working at was working on a problem around uh, connecting Western doctors with doctors in China. Uh, this is actually a huge problem because you can't – you can get on to the Western Internet, or at least you could in 2015, using a VPN. The problem was it was slow. I thought this was this is actually genius to me. So th- they didn't outright block websites. It was possible to get to them. However, it was just so unbearably slow. It was impossible to really find anything out, right? Like so you know, you would try to get on Gmail and it would take you like 15 minutes like man, like I can't do this. So you you know, switch to the Chinese equivalent and you'd use that instead. Um so that the so finding out information about the stock market crash was fairly difficult because, you know, this is not, they're not trumpeting the fact that the stock market crashed. Now they, they had a lot of central bank intervention and they were able to kind of smooth things out. Um, but it was interesting to be there during that, those kind of times. So this was a very different stock market crash than the U S experienced in the great depression where people jumped out of buildings. and they lost everything. In this case, people were over, were over leveraged. Yes, although I don't know, you know, I don't know enough about 29 to talk about that really, like the differences. I often think, you know, leverage, you know, leverage just mag- magnifies everything. So, you know, it makes your loss, you know, exponentially bigger and it can make your gain exponentially bigger. Um, I, I have this stang- saying, I love to say, um, never mistake leverage for genius. I think that's an important heuristic. In, on average, you should just always be, you know, curious when people have outsized returns, right? Because, 
there are only so many ways to get it you can use leverage you can use you can have sec secret information um talking about stocks of course but uh anyway but you know people you people you know when the tide goes out you know and you don't have any shorts on bad things happen that's interesting and the only other uh thing that sort of popped in my mind was reading about shanghai and being shanghai uh and the opium wars um at their conclusion the treaty designated Shanghai, Canton, and then Hong Kong as uh, trading centers by treaty. Um, so, I'm, and we know Hong Kong's, of course, there's, we could do a show on Hong Kong, but um, it has been a bustling trading center for my lifetime. And, um, and obviously Shanghai is, uh, and I'm guessing Canton is then in a similar fashion, uh, all being port cities that they've just, and uh, because of the opium wars, um, apparently have grown into uh, large trading centers. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, tell us about the Uyghurs. Yes. Um there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, I'll start with, I think, with an anecdote. Um, I remember distinctly, and things were different in 2015. It was happening, but it was different. Um, the extent was different. We'll cover what's been happening. Uh, I remember going to a restaurant um, in in Shanghai, and I, I, I found I really liked um, Uyghur food. So Uyghurs are... Um, they're a minority in Western China. They're dis discreet from the, the Han majority, uh, and they're Muslim majority. So they're mostly Muslim, although, uh, not exactly what you would imagine in that they're, you know, a lot of the drink, it's not, they're less strict in certain areas. It's kind of a different, uh, different, um, sect in that way, um. But very kind people. So I, I really enjoyed, you know, chatting with them. And there's one restaurant in particular I would go to often and, you know, chat with the kid and, you know, uh, and have a really good meal. And they're always very kind. And I really like the people. So it really struck home when, you know, doing some reading and reports start coming out in Western China um, that they're essentially building concentration camps and putting them in concentration camps. Um, so they, the, so I think there's, um, it's not clear exactly why this is happening, although it, it makes sense that there's an attempt at homogenization to try to erase Uyghur culture, the Uyghur identity. This is part of um, China's geographic problem is that there's big desert, massive open plains, and they're not like America where we are essentially an island with two friendly nations on, you know, below us and above us right uh which makes things easy um they're bordered in you know in western china there's uyghurs and southern china ish you've got tibet you know and that whole problem um but there's been a concerted effort by the chinese communist party to essentially destroy uyghur culture uh, in all kinds of crazy ways uh i like to say it and describe it as and a lot of people have never heard it, that this is happening they hear about hong kong and I agree what's happening in Hong Kong is a problem, but it's not nearly the problem um, for what's going on with the Uyghurs. 
mainly because nobody's heard of it. That that is a huge problem, and also I think it's a lot worse. Like it, it, you know, in Hong Kong, like people are openly protesting, things are happening, um, which prevents a, you know there's a lot of media attention, which prevents a lot of bad things from happening. But when there's no cameras, when cameras are tough that you know you can't get cameras in there. There's there was one documentary Vice did recently that was able to leak um, footage of you know Uyghur men being lined up and let out to uh, be put in camps and re quote unquote reeducated. Um, Han Chinese men being put in households with Uyghur women and women being forced to have sex with them. It's it. This is literally, if you imagine the Handmaid's Tale happening in real life, that is exactly what's going on, and no one is talking about it. And this is very distressing to me. I mean, this is this is one personally. This is extremely distressing to me because I like to you know I oftentimes I remember reading about um, genocide. In World War II, um, you know, the Holocaust, the Holomador, um, those things happening and wondering, you know, what would you do if something like that was happening today? Um, and the answer is, well, it turns out most of us would do very little, <laughs> which is which is very disturbing. Um, does that bring up any questions? Well, um yeah, one, two of the things we ought to bring up is like uh, uh, the both the Jewish and the African diaspora. That's what that's similar to what we're talking about right now, and in World War Two, I think there was a very similar situation um, in that um, Nazi Germany was uh, doing something very similar. And largely, people didn't know about it. And, right, right. And, and if Nazi Germany hadn't attacked Europe and the rest of the world, and um, the rest of the world hadn't intervened, uh, there may only be sort of whispers of history about that. Right. Um, so, and then, um, you know, and now culturally, we're much more familiar with the African diaspora. And uh, much more aware of it, and people are, I think, um, that that leads to what you would expect, in my opinion, among reasonable people, a lot of concern. So, a lot, I think, a lot of the problem, as you mentioned, is uh, people are unaware of the problem. Right, people are unaware of the problem. So that's part of the reason why we're talking about it. Um, it's interesting, and the parallels to what happened in World War II are quite strong. It is. Uh, it's an ethnic cleansing. Um, it's something where it's quite bureaucratized, as far as we can tell. You know, it's it's very difficult to find out what's going on because state media is obviously controlled. It's hard to get footage out. There's drone footage that leaked re recently of literally lining men up and putting them on train cars. That, now, what does that sound like? It yeah. sounds very similar to something that happened in, you know, the late 30s and 1940s. That's correct. Um when you go back and look at history reports, we were talking about this recently, uh, from World War II and the Holomador, those are, um, so the Holocaust and the Holomador, two massive genocides and tragedies um, that were completely preventable. So I, I like to talk about those two. Um, and just, do you know what the Holomador is? No. Okay, so that's, that's helpful. So the Holomador estimates... Um, vary quite widely on the number of people who died. So the Ukraine um, 
feeds a lot of people. It's the breadbasket of Europe, right? So it's they have a couple growing seasons. They can grow a lot of grain. Um, and but what happened in the Soviet Union in 1931, 32, and 33, 32 and 33 was when most of this happened. Um, the stock market crash in 29. And the Soviet Union keeps building in 32, 33, 31, 32, 33. And the question is, where do they get all this money? There's a great movie on this, Mr. Jones. It's about um, a Welsh journalist who worked for Lord George. Lord George. Man, I can't say his name. Lloyd George. There we go. Um, the prime minister at the time and goes to investigate. And, he's, and he wonders, like, what's going on? There's this small um, kind of core of reporters in Moscow that, you know, they report on Stalin. That's what they do. And they, they make their money doing this. It's like pretty profitable. There's one, the New York Times journalist, Walter Durante. Um, so Walter Durante, ah, man, this is, I hate this guy. Um, he got the Pulitzer Prize um, in journal for his journalism on Stalin. Um, so we'll get back to Durante in a second. But Walter Jones... Um, gets word that something's going on in the Ukraine. That's why they can keep building. There's something going on. Like, what, what's going on? So he travels to Ukraine, and he finds out everyone is starving. Three million people died of starvation. And as a side note, I have a friend who worked in the Peace Corps in the Ukraine, and he said one of the, his host family, interestingly, the mother, whenever he left, like it didn't matter if it was a day trip, how long he went, um, would, would give him a basket of food to bring with him. And it's a holdover from the Holomador where everyone starved. There was no food because they were taking the grain and shipping it to Russia, essentially. Taking all the grain. So, in, you know, it was collectivization. So output went down, and then they took everything they grew. Um, and so they just killed millions and millions of people. So, rightfully, um, Jones goes back to the UK after some finagling. Um, and he tries to tell the world about this and he writes newsletters and he tells anyone who will listen about this these terrible things that are happening in the ukraine uh and walter durante who's this famed expert on russia from the new york times says oh yes like you know there are a few people that are hungry but you know this is what needs to happen to make this this communist revolution reality and um jones is lying about all of it this is not real and published several several articles to this effect and about two million people died after these walter durante said nothing was happening was walter durante ignorant of the facts or did he have an ulterior motive where it's okay he knew it was going on it's not clear to what extent he knew although he knew it was much worse than he said in the article much much worse um Yes, he knew what was going on, and he wanted to selfishly keep Stalin as his source because he was rewarded handsomely. I mean, he still has the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, we have not, he's not gotten rid of it. I mean, and essentially, two million people's lives are partially on his hands, right? For, you know, denouncing the Jones article and several other reports on this. Um, so it goes to ulterior motive, and as a, a friend of mine says, in any question like this, follow the money and you'll find the truth and so i think we just told it that's right a lot which is very it's quite horrifying right um the holocaust was quite similar you know we don't see we have this story that we liberated europe because of it um 
you know, it's really just not mentioned. If you go back and you read the newspaper, um, old newspapers, they, they do not mention that this is going on. There's a question about how much people knew about it. But there were reports that this was happening, that things like the Holocaust were happening. Um, but the world just didn't know. Or they, you know, chose not to pay as much attention as they should have. You know, sometimes when you get news that shocking, it loses credibility because it's very difficult under normal uh, circumstances to believe. Like we sit on, you know, in our little cabin overlooking uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains on a beautiful summer afternoon, late summer afternoon. And if you talked about some of the things that were going on, they seem almost like they're on the surface of the moon. It's, it is unfathomable. I, I Just like, so, the Uyghur minority in Western China, uh, sitting here on this beautiful Sunday afternoon, I can't imagine that you know they are separating children from their parents and putting them in re-education camps. I mean, you know, what in the world? What kind of perverse incentives? And, and you know, it's interesting. I, I've got a couple of different thoughts about this. I, I'm not a complete enlightenment thinker in that. You know, well, I think everybody's pretty good, and just like sometimes. You know, there's some bad incentives, and that's what leads to it. You know, I really do think there are some bad people out there, which makes me an outlier in like a lot of, in some sense. I, I do think most of the time it is incentives uh, that just get incredibly out of whack. Um, but I do think there are some bad people out there, and, and modernity tries to somewhat ignore that. But I do think that is a something we should keep in mind when we talk about these things. It would be a, it'd be a wonderful episode to talk about exactly that because if you take the full range of humanity and you could probably break it down and say there uh, are really wonderful people and a lot of what I would consider normal average people that are really wonderful people too and that there are some people that are unbelievably dysfunctional and responsible for most of the trouble in the world. Yes, create a lot of problems. Yeah, so we might talk about that more in the future. A couple of things I did want to mention is we've mentioned the Uyghurs and talked about them, but anyone that would try to look them up might have trouble finding them because of the spelling of their name, which is U-I-G-H-U-R or alternatively U-Y-G-H-U-R. So that people can find them, and I would ask you this: uh, You mentioned their religious affiliation. You got any feel for how much being Muslim, being any religion, has to do with their problems? Uh, what's going on right now? Right. Uh, absolutely. So, in fact, in fact, um, it does give the CCC, CCP a quite Chinese Communist pop, pop Party. Excuse me. Um, a a bit of um, what aboutism excuse. So they try to use something like, well, you know, we have a terrorist problem in Western China too, just like you do, America. So we need to take care of it. So that has been a lot of, you know, that's fed a lot of things. Um, and, and also, I, and I, I think that's part of it. Um, I think it, it feels foreign to the Han Chinese. Um, that uh, that are the majority, and that that can be part of the problem as well. What, what is there a state-sponsored religion in the uh, in the Communist Party? No, they're so actually atheists. Could 
that could be, could that be part of the problem? Is they're just people of faith, any faith, and since we don't really think that way and think that's true, that's their problem. I think so. I, I think it does give. It's very. Um, yes, I think so. I think there's. Um, there is a divide. There's a great Peter Thiel essay on this. It's much more complicated than this. Between um, people that believe there's an afterlife and there is a God and there is a higher power, and there is and that and people that don't. Between atheists and I think believers in, especially monotheism, um, and I think it's because it gives uh, life and death a different meaning. If that makes sense, there's something a bit. Well, there's something very different there. It gives people something to believe in other than the Communist Party, which would be at sort of odds oh, that's with true, definitely. the party. Definitely, it definitely is someone higher than Chairman Xi. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. Um, Xinjiang. Do you yes. Do anything about Xinjiang? So that that's the region um, where the majority of Uyghurs live in western China. And to spell that so in case anybody wants to run to the google or look through the wiki it's x-i-a-n-j-i-a-n-g xinjiang definitely okay good um got any other thoughts about genocides in general huh well we could do we could talk for hours on this um i i think the tough um i i do think it is surprising how they can happen and people can ignore them and how quickly they can happen um it, it's tough to get accurate information about what actually is happening in western china that i mean f- for any number of reasons um to uh, the weaker minority it, it's because um for one we don't have accurate communication in and out that's a problem also, th- there's been reports that in the diaspora, there's a lot of threatening that goes on. So, you know, if you're going to go out and talk about it, they go, well, we've got your sister here and we got her in this you know, this camp and, you know, something might happen to her if you start talking about it, um, which is quite disturbing and really makes it difficult to get accurate information about what's going on. So it could be much worse than we even, we even think at this point. Um, I'm reminded of a great book called bloody harvest, which I can put on um, the show notes. It's about the Falun Gong. And I don't know where this stands in the last couple of years. The book was published, I think in 2012. Um, but in the late nineties, early two thousands, maybe even early nineties, um, Deng Xiaoping wanted the, the military, the PLA to um, be self-funded a bit more to uh, be a little more less dependent on, on state money. Um, and the idea that they came up with was um, organ harvesting. So essentially they, people found that there were no wait times for kidneys in China, which is weird, right? Because you, what's the wait time for kidneys in the United States now? Do you have any idea? Hearts? Um, it's a long time. Yeah, it's a, it is a significant wait list. It's a process. It, it is quite a process. In fact, I I know someone that works and manages that. Um, but you never had that problem in China, and and, and Australian tourists um, would go and, and get heart transplants, and um, 
anyway, there's a lot of reporting that was done. Uh, this was especially done against the Falun Gong. It's another. It's kind of a. It's it's a it's a, was a religious sect. You know, they it grew like crazy, and there was a lot of attempts attempts to uh, batten it down so they would actually arrest these people. Um, it, it encouraged people not to drink, not to smoke, uh, live well, kind of. Um, it's more complicated than that. I'm not doing it justice, um, but. Long story short, they started executing these people because, um, and part of the impetus was, you know, you shoot somebody in the right side of the chest, you give them anticoagulant before they die, um, and then you can uh, harvest their organs, and they have very good organs because they don't smoke and they don't drink. Their livers work great, you know, things of that nature. Um, so quite horrifying. So this happened to a lot of people, and I don't have the exact numbers up because I wasn't prepared to talk about this, but uh, this has happened to quite a few people. So when things are not... When you're not able to openly talk about things, this is the point I'm trying to get about, get at. Um, it can make problems very large. So, it, it, the the equivalent problem in America would be, you know, it could happen. It definitely could happen. For, for example, we had four sterilizations here in North Carolina up until 1975 or eight, 19 somewhere in there. But eventually, it does come out, and once we find out about it, you know, there's a big story. Usually, we're, we can fix it, um, which is which is important, right? Because you know, bad things will happen, but talking about them and being able to talk about them usually kind of puts in caps on how bad things can be. So when you can't talk about those things that are happening to, let's say, the Uyghurs in Western China, you know, an average cosmopolitan purse person in Shanghai can't say, "Wow, that sounds really quite horrible," right? Like. That just can't happen, um, which prevents a lot of pressure from coming on the party and kind of preventing that from happening. One of the ways you and uh, I see the world differently in a way we might we do disagree, I think, is um, I have seen the effect the Internet has had on the world from 25 years of not having it and then 25 years of having it. And so where... Uh, in the 1940s, it might have been very difficult to get information about what was happening uh, uh, to Jewish people in Germany. Uh, it's very difficult. It's getting more and more difficult to cover these things up. Uh, they might have to gain some size, which is terrible. But uh, the Internet and world travel communication uh, we might be slow on the uptake. We might be late getting there, but I think we find these things out faster. I, I do think it is faster, but it's just a matter of degree. Yeah. Degree might be the whole story. So yeah. after speaking about degree, let's talk about the NBA in China. Yes. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yes. So this is actually um, – so there was an event pretty big event uh the hong uh, wait, sorry sorry not hong kong the um the houston rockets gm tweeted out a support hong kong t tweet houston's pretty popular in, in china the rockets um and it caused this huge stir, stir huge stir and the funniest thing to me about this is it's still focused on the hong kong issue which i agree is a big issue but i do not think it's the number one thing we should be concerned about around human rights in China. I really do think it's the the um, Uyghur problem in Western China and how they're being treated. I really do believe that. Anyway, long story short, there's a big, uh, 
you know, big stink and, you know, there's, it's kind of immaterial what happened during that stink. But it, it did kind of lead a lot of people to realize, wow, like American business interests are really tied up in what the Chinese Communist Party thinks. Like, you know, the, and the NBA is part of it. Um, which is, is weird. So the NBA is super popular in China. I should mention that. Um, you know, I remember I was there, it was when, during the Golden State big run when it was nothing but Golden State. And I like Golden State, but man, they just won, they were in every championship for like five years, it feels like. I don't know exactly how long it was. Uh, but I remember, you know, it was like playing on every TV station, you know, like whenever you're walking down the street, the, the finals were playing while I was there. Uh, and the NBA has a lot of cultural power. I think a lot of it, it probably has to do with Yao Ming and um, and the, kind of his legacy. But uh, the NBA does have a lot of cultural power. Um, which leads me to believe they do, you know, Adam Silver walked this line where he's like, you know, we don't want to talk about political issues, like, you know, the Hong Kong thing. Um, which, again... Hong Kong thing's a much smaller problem than what we're talking about here. Um, or it's a, it's a smaller problem. I won't say it's much smaller. Um, but the thing I, I, I keep thinking, and my, my idea about how we could actually affect um, this kind of cultural genocide, and this could very well be soon be real genocide, human rights violations that are going on against Uyghur people, is actually through the NBA. So I had this idea last Thursday night. I, and I called my friend up. I actually texted him at like three o'clock in the morning about it. I'd have really good ideas between one and three o'clock in the morning for some reason. Um, and I thought, you know what? Like, what if on the courts while we're playing it, basketball, you know, we've got Black Lives Matter, which is good. We're raising awareness about that. But also um, free Uyghurs on the court. Hashtag free Uyghurs. Now, uh, this would lead the... Um, Chinese Communist Party to try to ban the NBA, sanction the NBA somehow, right? You know, um, prevent the games from playing. But what I don't think Adam Silver understands is that um, the level of cultural power that they do have. So if they, if the Chinese Communist Party cancel, because they said they were going to cancel the games, right? They said we're not showing the games anymore in China, but they're still showing the games. Because people love, you know, there's a large majority of people that really enjoy the watching the NBA in China. So you have this enormous power to highlight this issue and say, guys, like, uh, you know, really, like, can you just be cool with these people and stop doing this? You know, it's the right thing to do, right? You know, I don't know. Do you have to carve out a special region for them, a special country? Well, maybe you should do that. I don't know. Um, but that should be a conversation um, that you're having instead of trying to ignore it just so you take the money because it's a short it would be a short-term hit and in the long run you're going to win because you have cultural power in china and i think they should explicitly say we do not have a problem with chinese people right i think that should be very i think people should always make that explicit you know we don't have a problem with chinese people right it's not it's not a racism problem we want to um, make sure that people in western china are not put into concentration camps that is what we want right and, you know, and offer them a seat at the table. Say, look, if you guys shut them down, you know, it'll be fine. It'll be cool. We can take it off the you know the courts. It's fine. It's whatever. Um, Enos Cantor has actually talked a lot about this. He's um, Turkish. He's also Muslim. 
and I think that brings them a little bit closer to the the issue. And I so part of what I did is I had a my intern actually go and try and uh, find Adam Silver's email address. I've got a pretty good I'm pretty good at finding email addresses for people. And we're actually drafting up an email to try to get um, maybe not a meeting, but kind of float that idea in front of them. It's like, what if you could actually do something to affect this this world instead of you know making money and playing basketball? You actually had something bigger that you could do, which a lot of athletes have been talking about. And I think it is it, it's a uh, it would be a really good way to do that do it. Now a redirect. Of all the major sports leagues, the NBA appears to have been the most at the very forefront of social issues, promoting social issues. I think that's fantastic. They do it. They and I think they do a good job, and I think they do a good job of taking care of players. I think it's a well-run league. I think it's probably the the most well-run league of out of professional sports in the United States. And then right behind that, I would say, with the things in China and Hong Kong, I think they fumbled. In fact. It's almost like they cowered. Yeah, they did. And then I'm going to say, okay, and we'll step back, and it can be let's follow the money, and it's they're going to take a financial hit, and that's what's going on. That would be the easy answer. And all the answer can also be that if you can drive a wedge deep enough into China that when things split open, it exposes – you know, everything. In other words, you can't stop it. You can get a wedge that deep into a social structure where when people say, you know, you just got to knock that off. You just can't be doing that. You know, we know you're doing it. You got to right. stop. Exactly. That the world just stands up and then you go, yeah, you're right. We're going to have to somebody go get that taken care of. Right. Exactly. And so there's a couple ways to see it. But, you know, initially my response to it, it was sort of a cowardice thing. You know, you're too interested in the money. You, yes. know, you make plenty of money. These guys, the league makes money. The players make generational wealth. As one of the players res- re- recently said, I don't have any problems with players making that kind of money. Anybody that goes out and does something that well, make yeah, a lot absolutely. of money, I'm fine with it. But when you do that, you do have responsibility. I always, you know, I'm a rights and responsibility guy. Right. You got the right to make the money. You got the responsibility to do the right thing when it comes your exactly. way. So uh, it's a difficult issue. Uh, they, it, it does appear they ought to do more. Right. But, you know, what is their long-range uh, plan here? Is it to grow the league uh, in Asia uh, to the extent where – the government can't drive them out. You know, it's, will the voice become that loud? So, so I think they're already there. That that's my point. My point is like I don't think they realize that they're already there. That it would be impossible to dislodge them. Their monopoly power. The substitute. There is no substitute. See, there is no real substitute. That's the thing. The NBA is the NBA. They have a monopoly on that. They are the professional basketball league of the world. To be honest, you know, I I mean, what I'm trying. I w- we should pull up and see what the second um, largest basketball league is. I don't know, maybe Australia. It could be China. I don't know. Um, but the point is, the stars are here. All the stars, all the you know, star power are here. You know, LeBron James is here. Like you name it. Like there are all the best basketball players in the world. I mean, if you look at the Olympics, like it's it's. You know, have we lost an Olympics in basketball? 
Yeah, you don't remember that, do you? No. Well, well and, and was it before they could have professional players? Yes. Okay. Well, that, see, now that's different, right? Like, I don't know if we've lost one since we've had professional players or not. Yeah. I just don't know. Uh, and, and, and this goes past sports. This goes to entertainment. Right. Like, if you were looking at entertainment around the world, the NBA would have to come up pretty early. It's it's a huge entertainment. Yeah, yeah. It, it's one of the largest entertainment, and it has, you know, world power too. Um, unlike American football, American football yeah. is huge in the United States, but it has no power in the world. Um, you know, in general, I I don't I I wonder how much you know, how much responsibility athletes have, and owners and GMs, et cetera, have to talk about these things. But I, I think they have responsibility here because it's it would be surprisingly easy and I think it would really work. It it needs to be it needs to be put together well. And it need you, you need to you know, Adam Silver needs to tell the Communist Party our explicit goal is not to harm your power. I hope you understand like and I think they should I think they should go along that lines. Like we're not doing anything to try to disrupt your legitimacy, anything. We're not. Uh, we're fully supporting you, although that has problems, but I do think this is the right tag. We fully support you, but we want you to fix this issue. Um, that's all interesting. And we're going to move to a similar but different topic uh, and the TikTok deal. Yes, the TikTok deal. So what do you want to tell us about the TikTok yes. deal? So we were talking about, I mentioned this earlier, the Great Firewall. Um when we talk about big tech companies, it's interesting, right? Well, Dad, do you know where the big tech companies are in the world? Where do they come from? Well, I would think most of the big, biggest tech companies are right here in the United States. It's all the United States. They all come from the United States. You know, Europe had one wire card. That was a fraud. That was gone last week, two weeks ago. Well, that was about a month now. Uh, you know, we essentially had the, all of the big tech companies in China has tech companies, but a lot of them, big tech companies, but a lot of them are copies of American tech companies. This is not always true. Huawei would be an example of one that's not really a clone. There's plenty of examples that are not. WeChat, etc. Um, but um, the big search engine equivalent, and I can't remember what it's called at the moment, is a clone of Google. There's a couple like that. Okay. Um, TikTok is new, and it's from China. And owned by ByteDance, essentially every teen in the United States has downloaded this app. So why are is the U.S. federal government concerned about this? Do you have any idea? Well, I think has to, from what I've read, has to do with their concern about spying. Yes, absolutely. So everything the the point is, and the reason they're concerned about spying is because we do this. We do spying too, right? So. Um, you know, we can get phone records, transaction records. Funny enough, um, little tidbit here. Did you know the uh, the um, cell phone carriers actually require the federal government pay them to give them your data? So if they want to do a uh, FISA, like a warrant request, they, they, they require it. So they'll be like, hey, uh, you know, Attorney General Barr, that'll be $50 for David's uh, cell phone records there. Follow the money. Find some really interesting stuff there. Um but, you know, we do a lot of snooping. That was the Edward Snowden stuff, um, how they were pulling all this data in and um, pulling everyone's data. Um, 
we wouldn't have any view into TikTok and you know the CCP would have view into American data. So this is like a big concern. Now, they probably hack our stuff anyway and have a lot of access that we don't know about, but just explicitly we're not cool with that. Secondly, um we're not cool with a big tech company coming over here and being able to profit from us and us not being able to profit in Chinese markets. Um, so Google is blocked in China. Facebook can't work in China. Well, some of that was not wanting to bow to the Communist Party and like, you know, censoring stuff. That's fair. But also, um, you know, we, we can't sell in China. And so they're not going to be able to sell here. I think that is the right way to manage it. Um, I'm pro free trade. I think free trade is, is a is a good good thing but i do think it can um when the people negotiating free trade are free trade hardcore free trade believers any deal looks good because it doesn't matter even if like we can't sell in china they can sell to us we're better off you know what i mean on average you know those farmers you know that's that's nice that uh they're all gonna go broke and start using opiates but uh we're better off, right? We got cheaper products, man. Um, and I do think in general, this is true, right? This is true, but it does ignore, um, you know, what are people going to do? Like, so in West Virginia, what are you going to do if you can no longer, you no longer have a factory job making, producing us steel? Well, you know, the idea of the economists thought, well, you know, people, they'll go retrain, right? We just like, yes, they have to retrain. That sucks, but they'll go retrain, you know? Well, the truth is, is if your alternative is to work as a home health worker or be a steel plant arc operator, you know, you choose, it, it, a lot of people choose unemployment and, um, you know, opiates and alcohol. And it, you see this in the numbers, right? Like uh, a lot of deaths of despair now. And a lot of that, I think, is probably to do with this kind of free trade dogma, which is, is good. Like, don't get me wrong, cheaper products on average, are good. But there are costs that um, we ignore. For example, the, so the Japanese um, in the 90s or in 80s, 90s, when they were developing, you know, they had this thing where you couldn't import American cars, but you could uh, you could sell to American markets, right? So, like, the, let's say you're Nissan. You could build, and Datsun at the time, you can build a good car and perfect it in the Japanese market and then sell it overseas in the United States. And it gives um, you this concept of slack. I think we've talked about this in evolution where there's some slack. So you have enough, um, you know, if it's super competitive, you can never get over that hump and actually compete with the American car manufacturers. But if you have some slack, it gives you time to build up, retool plants, figure out the best way to do it. Kaizen, you know, Toyota, like this is our process and it's the best process in the world to make good vehicles. And then we sell the American market. And we can kind of, you know, crush the competition, right? Uh, you know, there's a couple things in here. Uh, one is technology has displaced people since the industrial age. Yes. And it, it, that's still true. That's true. And globalization has displaced yes. people. And, right. you know, it, it's part of what you're pinning your hopes on is a rising tide raises all boats. That's the thought. So Absolutely. You're going to displace some Americans. You're going to, everybody else around the world is hopefully going to take a step up. They have. I don't think there's any question that's true. Absolutely. Um, it's shown so, in the data. There's a lot less poverty in the world than there was ten, right. even 10 years ago. And and then there, it's the law of unintended consequences, one of which was 
when the coronavirus got here, we suddenly couldn't make uh, a PPE, uh, personal protective equipment for healthcare workers or for individuals. We couldn't make M95 masks and other things because we'd sent all that stuff overseas. Yes. Which we apparently are thinking about turning some of that around, which is probably a really nice adjustment to the world situation. That's right. So, uh, yeah, there is that, that, that law of unintended consequences Well, some of those things will happen. Overall, is it a good idea? Probably. Yes. And, you know, we're seeing signs that things are coming back around, right? You know, Rogue in Ohio, like we are finally building stuff here again. And the truth is we will have to build things, build physical, new physical things here again because uh, to push humanity forward, that's where innovation is going to have to happen. It's going to have to happen in the real world. We've been focused on computers and apps a lot over the past 20 years. But we'll run out of places to work there, and we'll have to go back to the physical world and building things. And you're right. I, I think, you know, I this PPE situation, It I vividly remember, vividly remember a discussion in my econ class. It was actually politics, philosophy, and economics intro class with Professor Jonathan Anomaly, super smart guy. And we actually discussed a use case just like this. And, and the question was, should we be subsidizing farmers um, in the U.S.? And he's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't really know if there's enough, and I don't want to put words in his mouth because it's been years. Um, but, you know, he was like, I don't, I don't think there's a strong enough argument um, to subsidize them because, you know, there's these benefits to free trade, um, tariffs. I'm not sure that's a really good idea to protect them. Because even if there is a war, I don't think it'll be that much of an issue to you know just spin it up or something like that. This is a real-world case where we don't have enough PPE. And what happened? Well, China, they blocked exports till they stockpiled enough for themselves, and then, which is completely rational from their sense of the world. I think there's a disconnect between theoretical um, thinking about things in theoretical terms and application in the real world. When theories meet the real world, weird things happen, right? Like, so, you know, we're in this, like, anarchic kind of world, right? There's no world government um, that sets the playing field. It's each country for themselves, essentially. Um, and weird things can happen because of that. And, you know, I, you're right. The coronavirus pandemic really did highlight the fact that we have to build these things here if we're going to... Um, you know, it's it's just important. It's an important thing to be able to build, at least have the capacity to do things like that. And, and you know, if you think it's bad when we can't produce medical grade supplies, yeah, what is it going to be when we don't have the capacity to grow food? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, that's so, something to think about. I, I I'm much more bullish actually on food production. I think that's one of our strongest assets that we still have left. We have huge. Um, we can produce more calories per person essentially than any other country that's of any size. We've got several growing seasons. You know, we've got northern, uh, like the northern Midwest, the southern Midwest. We can grow corn, wheat, soybeans. You know, we can, you know, the Germans during World War II um, had to turn coal into like jet fuel. You know, like we don't have to do that. We've got oil here, right? We've got oil. We've got raw materials. You know, uranium out of the ground you name it we can do it here and we're a large country and we're you know we've got a plane in the middle of the country 
We've got these, you know, navigable waterways, the Mississippi River. I mean, a, a lot of geographic positives. Okay, we'll switch to something else. Is Google more likely to work with the People's Liberation Army than the American military? You know, I would say uh, it's uncomfortably close on that one. I'm, I'm not going to say they'll, they'll work with the PLA. Uh, there's been some talk that they've, they, you know, they've done some things, at least collaborated a little bit. But they, they absolutely will not work with the American military. Um, have you ever heard of Project Maven? No. So um, Google's quite parochial. This is, this, is a, this is amazing to me. So Project Maven um, was an AI project that Google um, actually worked on the, with the U.S. military on. And the idea was to use machine learning to identify um, – better identify civilians so they did so that the u.s military would not um, use drone strikes on civilians on weddings so on the surface this is about innocuous as a military project as possible because um what are you trying to do we're trying to kill less civilians that's pretty good right that's pretty good um massive backlash and most of this backlash if you look at it was from um was from people in google who are from other countries that are not American citizens. And wow, you think about it like weird, like, you know, Google is not really loyal to the American government. They're loyal to some parochial ideal of some world like government that does not exist. You know, they're they're they are essentially, you know, they're they're parochial, they're internationalists. Um and I think it's important because if you don't pick a side, you're picking the other side, right? Like that—that's the truth. They, I think that's what they don't—they don't really understand. It's like, and I absolutely do understand. You know, critiques of U.S. foreign policy, absolutely. Lots of horrible foreign wars that were fought for no reason, cost us trillions of dollars, and now we go and we applaud George Bush because. You know, uh, you know, he's like drawing some portraits of some immigrants last week, right? Like, oh, he's so good, but he put us trillions of dollars in debt over pointless wars because you know Saddam did something to his daddy or something like that, man. Like, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. It's just, you know, it, it's 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 astonishing, right? And so I, I understand critiques of of um, American foreign policy are absolutely apt. The truth is, what's the alternative? And the alternative is the Chinese Communist Party. And so, you know, you got to pick your dog. And dog has flaws, but someone has fleas or has a lot more fleas. You know, I don't know. Like, you've kind of got to – it seems clear, but I, I think they, they, they see it as a false dichotomy where they can choose not to help the U.S. government. And I think most of big tech is like that. Um, although, you know, Microsoft seems to be willing to work with the U.S. government a lot more now and, like uh, – Amazon tried to win the big government contract, the Jedi contract for the cloud computing stuff. Um, but the, to be honest, I think Microsoft is at least um, – it, it's not – it's much less of a technology company than the other ones in, in the sense that it's not doing groundbreaking AI research like Google is. It doesn't have deep mind. Um, I think it's the less, least tech of the tech company. So, yes, it's good. I like Satya – Thank you. Thank you for your help. Like, I appreciate it. You're setting the stage, at least, where your competitors won't, um, and may, taking a stand on that. But uh, I don't think it's quite enough. All right. Well, we're running out of time here in a late summer running afternoon. Running out of daylight. Running out of daylight. Uh, it is a beautiful late summer afternoon 
in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. And we're going to wind up this episode of Narrative. So thanks for the information, Will. Thanks. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more Narratives.